I am not called next Jerry. Two, three, six, seven. Anybody? Two, three, six, seven. Anybody got that number? <laughs> Good to be here tonight. I, I want to thank Bob and and Juanita and the board for inviting us here. This is a fantastic uh, roundup. We've had a, a good time, and we really have enjoyed ourselves. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, I want to I want to do a shout out uh, right now that I saw today at lunch a good example of unconditional love and living life on life's terms. So I want to give a shout out to Tyler. Tyler's a special special boy. There he is. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tell you what, y'all. On three, I'm going to count to three, and let's all say hi, Tyler, okay? One, two, three. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself a little bit. Uh, Memorial Day of 1961. I had just graduated high school that year, that May, and uh, went on a, a picnic uh, with a young lady that I had met the year before. I was a senior in high school, she was a junior in high school, and I had fell madly in love with her. Uh, and uh, we're, I'm an Army brat and she's an Army brat, and uh, we lived, met in Kansas of all places. Each year, each uh, beginning of each year, all us guys would scout around at all the new girls coming in, and I saw this little petite, beautiful gal, and I thought, I think I need to pursue her, and uh, I was surprised that she didn't reciprocate. She was, <laughs> took me a while, but uh, finally we got together and started dating and everything, and, and fell in love, and uh, that, uh, that Memorial Day, we went on a picnic. We were with two or three other couples, and later in the afternoon, we all kind of paired off, and we were making our plans, our future plans. And we, uh, I was going to go down back to Alabama, that's where our parents were from originally, that July. She was going to come back that next fall. I was going to start college, and she was going to finish high school, go to a business school. And once she got out of business school, we were going to get married, uh, we were going to, uh, I was going to get a, you know, graduate from college, get a job making a gazillion dollars a year. Uh, we were going to buy a house with a picket fence and have 1.5 children. Now, during that whole conversation, alcohol and alcoholism wasn't mentioned once. Yeah? Wasn't mentioned once. Was not in our plans. But that was not the case to be. Now, one of the things I found out later, one of the reasons she fell in love with me and agreed to marry me was that, number one, I did not drink then, <laughs> yet. <laughs> and number two, I came from a church-going family. And that was true, too. Uh, I had a mama and a daddy that uh, lived their faith. They were, they, uh, they were faithful uh, Churchgoers, they believed what they believed, and they tried to practice their belief. And that appealed to me uh, then, still does now. They, they lived that way until, well, Daddy died uh, seven years ago. Mom's still living. But she would go to church with us, this beautiful young thing. And on, on the surface, there's no reason, really, that I should be standing up here tonight if you look at where I came from and what 
uh, how I was brought up. Went to church with my folks. They took me. Um, and because of all those influences, when I was about 13 years old, I was in church, and I got the feeling that God wanted me to let him in my life, open up my heart, let him come live in my heart, and let him be the director of my life. And it was real. It was valid. So I went down and joined the church. It was on a Sunday night. And I had a peace, a feeling of peace and serenity that uh, I had not had before. Now, I was 13. I hadn't done a whole lot of things wrong. <laughs> I, I had thought about a lot of things, and I had planned to do a lot of things wrong, but I hadn't yet. <laughs> but I, uh, I got there, and I, I, was, I, I had this peace and serenity for about a minute and a half. And I, and I looked back on the back row, and there sat all my buddies back there. And I thought, my first thought was, oh, man, what are they going to think of me now? And for the next 25 years, I tried to live a double life. I tried to be, be what you wanted to, me to be, whoever that was. That, you know, I, wanted to, I wanted to be a people pleaser. And so I continued a long time in that, uh, that life, going to church, being a part of the church, uh, and I, I advanced in a Southern Baptist church, uh, became a deacon, ordained Sunday school teacher, all those things. But I was living a double life. I uh, got through college. Uh, we did get married. She worked. I went to school. I did get a job making a little bit less than a trillion dollars a year. <laughs> we moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, I got a job as a traveling salesman. That appealed to me. I knew that traveling, traveling salesmen dressed well, had big cars, uh, went out and, and didn't work very much, had a lot of money, and had a good time. Didn't answer anybody, and that really appealed to me. And you didn't have to know anything. You, know, you had to be able to gift of gab and silver-tongued devil, and you were made, you know. So I started traveling out of lived in Chattanooga, traveled northern Alabama, and... Uh, North Georgia, a little bit of Tennessee. wasn't long that I ran up on a bunch of old traveling salesmen, uh, old peddlers, I called them. And I suspect they were probably, some of them was probably old as 35. <laughs> I, I graduated college with a four-year degree when I was 20 years old. I wasn't even legally, I couldn't legally drink. So I ran up on those guys, and they said, look, uh, why, don't you, why don't you come join us? Said, you know, after you get off work, we'll have dinner, and then we'll go out and have some fun. I said, all right. They said, where are you staying? And I told them where I was staying, and they said, oh, no, no, we don't stay there. We stay at the Holiday Inn in Rome, Georgia, Rome, Georgia. And so I went and unchecked myself out of where I was at and checked myself into where I was supposed to be. <laughs> <coughs> and I spent most of my life doing that, checking myself out and checking in where I was supposed to be. So we went out, wound up that night going to a little roadside tavern called the Georgian in Rome, Georgia. A little beer bar in the front, but in the back they had a uh, back room for the regulars. And uh, believe me, these guys were regulars. And uh, back there, they, uh, you went in and you brought your own, your own booze. They served you setups, had a jukebox and a dance floor and served you setups. Now I'd had one occasion before to get drunk when I was 16. I had gone down to visit my grandmom and granddaddy in northwest Florida, that panhandle area up there. Older friend of mine uh, came by and wanted to know if I wanted to go to a movie. I said, yeah. So we got in the car and he said, um, 
rather than go to the movie, you want to go out and have some beer? Well, I ain't never had any beer. I said, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I did succumb to peer pressure right easily, you know. <laughs> so we went out to this little roadside bar, and I went in. Back then, if you were breathing and had some money, uh, they would serve you. It didn't make any difference, you know, no, no IDs or everything. And I went in that place, and it was dimly lit, jukeboxes up very, very loud, uh, a lot of women. Uh, they were older women. Uh, they were probably 19, 20 years old again, you know. I, I was 16, so, and uh, after two or three, four beers, I don't remember, I remember getting that glow, and I remember feeling that I was, I could talk to these gals, and I could dance, and I thought, I think this is the greatest thing I've ever found. Now, Mom and Daddy and all my relatives said there's no redeeming quality whatsoever with alcohol, and I thought, they've been keeping this a secret <laughs> for whatever reason, this is, this is good stuff. So I thought to myself, if I win and if I get a chance to do this again, I'm going to participate. Rome, Georgia, that night I had a chance to participate. That night I got uh, drank bourbon and Coke. I think that's a state drink in Georgia. Um, it was then. I'm sure it is today. So I got uh, that feeling completed that night where the thrill started in my head and went down to my toes and came back up and kind of settled in my belly. The, my axis moved just a little bit so that I was in tune with the rest of the world and the rest of the world. And this was a magic elixir. I mean, this was something else. I said, I'm going to pursue this as often as I can. I had a problem. As a Baptist deacon, I couldn't drink in front of other Baptists still. And that's still the case today. Uh, so I had to confine all my drinking to being on the road. When we first moved to Chattanooga, I was out of town one night a month. Within a year, when we moved again, within a year, I was out two nights a week. And I had to do that in order to continue. And so I was just gone all the time. Wife didn't know I'm drinking. That went on for a pretty good while. We finally uh, wound up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And in Pittsburgh, uh, couple of strange things happened. I got a call one day from the preacher there. We found a Southern Baptist church in, in Pittsburgh. I got a call from him one day. He said, we got a problem, Jerry. I said, what's that? He said, two of our deacons have been spotted drinking alcohol out in public. He said, what are we going to do? I said, well, we'll have to call a deacons meeting. So we did, and so the only thing we had left to do was say, they left and became Presbyterian or something, I don't know, <laughs> but they weren't Baptists, <coughs> and I, I did that knowing that come Monday I was going to be somewhere up in New York with a bottle of scotch drunk on my butt, but I had to do that, keep that facade up. It was in, uh, it was in Pittsburgh, I left there going to, and I think it was Buffalo. <coughs> now. Brenda don't know I drink. Uh, I think she's starting to think I've, I'm starting to become crazy, but I'm not drinking. She calls the motel up there. I think it was at a Holiday Inn in Buffalo. And I happened to be, I'd come back to the room for something, and the phone rang, and like a dummy, I picked it up. <clears throat> I learned to drink and drive early. Uh, it passes time uh, driving like you wouldn't believe, and... and 
from Pittsburgh to Buffalo, about an eight-hour drive. And, you know, the time you get there, you, you're pretty happy. I was. So I picked the phone up, and uh, I had a problem when I was drinking. My tongue got right, right heavy. <clears throat> and uh, one, of my, one of my buddies down in, in uh, North Carolina calls it that foreign language we spoke. I picked up the phone. I said, hey, hey, hey. And she said, she said, Jerry? I said, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, hey, no, hey, no, hey, me. Yeah. And I finally got out that uh, I, I was always good at coming up with stories. I'm in on the spot. Now, they may not be good stories, but they were stories. And she said, what's wrong with you? And I finally got out. I said, you know, remember when I left uh, home this morning, I was with the flu or something. And I said, a contact had just come out, those contact tablets. I said, I got some contact and, and took, uh, took some contact. Well, when you start lying, you've got to continue to lie. That's the problem with lying, you know. And she said, well, how many did you take? Ten or twelve? I don't know. <laughs> 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 she said, oh, my God. So she thought I had OD'd on contact up in Buffalo. So what does a good deacon's wife do? She calls the preacher. You know, Jerry's OD'd on contact up in Buffalo. Preacher says, not a problem. Let me call Niall. And Niall's another one of the deacons. He said, he'll know what to do. Calls Niall. And Niall says, well, that's no problem. Said, Niall was an FBI agent. And... He said, that's no problem. He said, I've got a friend up there in Buffalo. said, he's an agent as well. I'll call him and let him go over and take care of Jerry, get him to the hospital. <laughs> so he calls his, his, the other FBI agent in Buffalo. And uh, this time I'm trying to get at least coherent. You know, and Buffalo's cold in the winter. And uh, I was running around out there on the boardwalk with my skivvies on, cold, you know, trying to sober up in the shower. And I finally got where I could talk. And... Uh, FBI agent comes uh, to the desk and he said, uh, you got, a, you got a, a guy by the name of Jerry Searcy registered here? Desk clerk said, we can't give out that information. That's confidential. He pulled that big FBI badge. He says, he's in room 204. I'll take you to him. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes up there and I convince him that I've not OD'd on contact and I'm okay and blah, blah, blah. And so the reverse starts. You know, I... I call Brendan, she calls the preacher, he calls Niles, and everything is cool. I got the whole East Coast lit up because I'm in Buffalo on to take a drink, you know. So I believe me, it affects more than you guys if you're out there drinking. I got this letter in the mail. I'm going to read this first and we'll continue on. I'm in, I'm in uh, Pitt, Buffalo right now. But this came uh, from uh, our, Sa our Savior Pentecostal Mission in Smithville, North Carolina the Reverend John Bikerdite, pastor, says, Dear Mr. Searcy, let me introduce myself. I am the Reverend John Bikerdite, pastor of this church and the director of missions combating the evil of alcohol. <laughs> I have spent several years touring the country preaching against this evil. I usually spend several week, uh, weekends a year offering lectures to interested groups showing the, them these evils. I emphasize the destruction of homes, business, and personal. My assistant, Clyde Darby, has accompanied me on, on all these lectures. He sits on the stage, needing a haircut, unshaven, wearing clothes of many days' wear. He belches, passes gas, picks his nose, mumbles to himself, as do all drunks of this type. 
He is a fine example of the ravages of alcohol use. Last month, sadly, Clyde died. I am, I am needing a replacement for the upcoming tour. <laughs> you have been highly recommended. Can you help me? <laughs> I got a letter like this about 10, 20 years ago. So <laughs> I thought, my goodness. Brenda thought it was for real when she saw that. <laughs> I forgot to mention my sobriety date is uh, February the 24th, ni uh, 1983. And uh, so, you know, if I'd have got this letter 30 years ago, I probably would have volunteered. <laughs> Sounded like a good gig to me. Uh, we finally uh, moved to Chicago from Pittsburgh, and I had to, I told Brenda at that time, I said, look, I said, they do things differently up, up north here. I said, they, um, they entertain. I said, they'll have cocktails before dinner, and and a lot of times we'll have people over for cocktails and we'll go out and eat and that kind of thing. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going up the corporate ladder pretty fast and this will certainly help that journey. And she, I'd convince her and we would, I'd miss that mark. I don't know if y'all ever done that where you, 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 you try and just get a little bit feeling good and, go, and stop. Well, I never could stop. I'd go past it and I'd embarrass her and embarrassed me and so I'd just quit for a while and then I'd convince her that I'd got a hold of it and on and on and on. But at least she knew I wasn't crazy. She just knew I was drinking. Now Brenda didn't like the drinking at all. Her daddy was a, a mean drunk. He would abandon them out in the middle of uh, the desert in Texas, her mama and her brother. Uh, he would beat up her mama. He'd spend all the money. And I didn't do any of those things. Never did any of those things. Uh, during our uh, my drinking escapade, so I would he was the greatest enabler to me because I would compare me to him and to prove to her that I wasn't the one having a problem with alcohol. It was her problem; she was the one having the problem. So we were in Chicago for a number of years, and then I decided to change jobs and went down to Houston. I'm still in the church, sneaking around with my drinking, still trying to work both sides of the of the fence, if you will. I want to move to Houston, move from Chicago to Houston in July. Now, that's an eye-opener right there, I guarantee you. Uh, but I can remember vividly uh, telling God that uh, I appreciate everything that he's done for me. I said, you've done a good job. And I said, I know there are people out there that need you a lot more than I do, and I think I can handle this thing by myself from now on. But if I ever need you, I'll call you. And uh, I believe that. I really did. At least I convinced myself I did. So I decided at that point that uh, I could not serve two masters. And I just uh, left God in Houston, Texas. And I went about my, my way doing anything and everything that Jerry wanted wanted. My disease, uh, and it is a disease, I believe that book tells us that. I've got some doctor friends that are alcoholics, and they tell me all about the difference in the brains and all that kind of stuff of the drunk, uh, you know, as opposed to the non-drunk. What happens when you add alcohol to that? So I believe all that stuff, but I know how I acted and what I, what I did. And I believe this disease affects us uh, in three ways. I think it affects us spiritually, emotionally, or mentally and uh, last uh, physically. And with me, uh, the 
first thing that, that started to go and to slip was my spiritual connection. Uh, I had had a belief in God. I, it was real. It was valid. And I let that slide because I thought I could handle things a lot better than God could. I knew me better than God, I thought. And uh, so I just let that slide. That was the first thing to leave me was my any spiritual. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that left me was my mental and emotional state. I started making decisions based totally on self. And many of those decisions uh, were was followed by a, a large dose of consumption of alcohol. I had the feeling that if I had a bottle of scotch and I could drink that and sit around and ponder what I should do, that I could come up with the correct decision. And I believe that. At least I convinced And uh, the last thing that uh, that was to go was my my physical condition. I... I was uh, headed from uh, from uh, North Carolina down to Miami for a uh, trade show, and I was uh, I was a designated uh, barkeep at our at our suite, and we stopped unscheduled stopped in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. It was on a Sunday morning. Don't know why we stopped, but we did. So I got off the plane. I went into the uh, terminal there and uh, went in there to get a drink. Went in there to get a Bloody Mary and. Uh, didn't realize that bars were closed on Sunday and at that time in South Carolina. But over the corner, they had one of these blood pressure machine things. Stick your hand in, you know, and you can punch a button and it'll come up and read your blood pressure. And I did and punched a thing and all of a sudden, whistles started going off and <laughs> lights started blinking and said, see your doctor, see your doctor, your emergency. And I thought, my Lord, this thing is really broke. <laughs> and uh, my blood pressure was like, 280 over 200 or something like that. It was sky high. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I, I probably, when I get back, I'm probably need to go see my doctor and see what's wrong. You know, didn't phase me. Went on down to Miami, uh, bartender, drank like I always do. And several weeks later, it dawned on me that uh, maybe I go better go see my doctor. So I got an appointment and uh, didn't know this. It was a woman doctor. Didn't know that until I got there. And uh, we went through the whole thing, and it was still sky high. First question that y'all probably never been asked by a doctor, do you drink socially? <laughs> How much do you drink? Oh, beer or two a week. Yeah. <laughs> she said, I don't believe you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I said, well, why not? And I said, I just shook her head. She prescribed some, uh, some blood pressure pills. And so I took them until... I discovered that taking them pills uh, curbed my sex drive at all, and I said, I'd rather die than, <laughs> than give up sex at the time, and so I quit taking them, and I went about my, my, my merry way. Uh, we wound up in North Carolina from Houston. I needed to get out of Texas. Uh, I had uh, taken a job for all the wrong reasons. I got down there, I hated it, and they didn't take long before they hated me. Uh, so I uh, had a head, headhunter from Dallas call me and told me about a little company in North Carolina that he thought might interest me. And I went out, flew out to High Point, North Carolina. I had to look up High Point on the map. Didn't know, had no idea where it was at. Uh, I flew out there and I fell in love with this company. Uh, it's uh, huge. It was the, I guess it still is, the largest uh, still photography, commercial photography studio in the world. 
and uh, they did all of the brochures and catalogs for the furniture companies and wallpaper companies and all that kind of stuff. Looked like a movie set. They had uh, bays and accessories, and they would come in and decorate. They had, and I thought, this is my kind of place, you know, all creative. And, uh, plus, they, uh, they had a good understanding of the sales game. They uh, had, a, had a suite uh, of rooms at a hotel there uh, and had a fully stocked bar. They gave each salesman a key to the suite and a key to the bar and said, I want you guys to entertain, the do what you want to do, just get I thought I'd die and go to heaven. I mean, for a budding drunk, that's uh, fantastic. <clears throat> I, had a, I had covered the southeast at that time. Uh, went where I wanted to go pretty much, did what I wanted to do, and I entertained. I would go there and entertain my clients at that uh, suite of rooms. I'd entertain your clients. I'd entertain people off the street. <laughs> it matter. I was a good company man. I can recall passing out on the couch in that suite, uh, you know, passing out, just like dressing out, coot suit and tie and everything else. And about 7 o'clock in the morning, I hear a key in the door, and I thought, oh, Lord. And I jump up, trying to get myself a little bit together, and it's another one of the salesmen coming in. We had two or three drinks and went to work. <laughs> Lovely place to work when you're a drinker. <laughs> and um, I left that job. And got another job that was even better with a competitor. And this time I had the entire country that I could go to and do destruction on, you know. And uh, I had to pack rather creatively because many times I would start out to go to Chicago and wind up in Miami. Now, you don't dress the same generally, especially in the wintertime, if you're going to uh, Chicago and you wind up in Miami. A lot of times I would wind up and uh, not know where I was at. Strange motel, strange hotel. <clears throat> and I developed a, a system. Uh, I would look in the, where the phone was and look to see if there was a phone book. Usually if there's a phone book, you can look and it'll tell what town you're in. Now, if there's no phone book, you can go down to the lobby. There's usually newspapers and vending machines. You can tell, you know, Jacksonville Times or whatever. And if all else fails, then you go up to the desk clerk and you say, how do you pronounce the name of this city? What's the correct pronunciation? Because I'd stayed in places like Tondawanda and Cheektowanga, and, you know, and uh, I flew out of Greensboro, North Carolina. That was where I flew out of. And I did the same, woke up one and I looked around, I didn't know where I was at, and there was no phone book, no newspapers. And I go over to, to the front desk, I said, how do you pronounce the name of this town? The clerk says, Greensboro. <laughs> I ain't even left town. <laughs> Last thing I remember was the flight being delayed, and I was going to Winston-Salem to have a drink. And, uh, now, <laughs> I got a friend of mine that didn't have his first drink until he was 33 years old and drank alone. He'd go to his office on Saturday morning and drink by himself. We got to be good friends and running mates. He's, got, he's six months so, more sober than I am. And I told him, I said, use one of Peggy, Peggy's terms, bless your heart. I said, I wish I'd known you when you were drinking. I could have freed you up. You know, he didn't have a bit of fun. You know. But we all know that that fun, that things that uh, alcohol does for us, starts doing it to us. And uh, uh, Things went from uh, from bad to worst. Uh, I had two children by this time, born a girl, girl and a boy, girl's oldest. 
And, uh, you know, we had planned on having 1.5 kids, and we did. We had a daughter, and uh, my son, it took him a while to get from that .5 up to a full person. He, uh, he finally got his degree, and a BS degree, a four-year degree, uh, last December at 39 years old. Yeah. But he, he finally made it. He got married and, and uh, settled down and, and did okay. And I'll talk about him a little bit. But uh, things were not going good on the home front. Uh, I, got, uh, I got early dementia. In uh, that I would forget uh, to do things like come home. Uh, I'd forget which home was mine. <laughs> forget which wife was mine, you know, <laughs> a lot of times. So... Things were not good in my household, and I got up one Saturday morning, and I was home. I looked around, and I recognized I was home, and I was going down the hall to my intent was to try and sneak a drink somehow. I still didn't drink at home, mind you, you know. And Brenda met me in the, in the hall, and she said, you've got two choices. You can leave, or me and the kids will leave. And I thought to myself, well, that's a heck of a decision to make on a Saturday morning, empty stomached. You know. uh, I said, okay. So I left, and uh, I went by and got a bottle of that old Chevis, a little Chevis scotch, and uh, went over to, over to Winston-Salem and uh, had some friends over there, and they weren't home, and I just opened the window and climbed in the house and, and started drinking and thinking, thinking and drinking. And uh, this time, that part didn't work. I, uh, one minute, I'd be shivering and freezing to death, and the next minute, I'd be sweating and burning up. And it dawned on me then that I had the flu or something. And so I called Brenda, and I said, Honey, I, I'm sick. She said, I know you're sick. That's why you're not here. <laughs> I, said, I said, No, I said, I mean, I've got the flu or something. She said, Come home pre-Alanon. She hadn't gone to Alanon yet. But she did have enough sense. I came home. She stuck a thermometer in my mouth, and I did have 102 fever or something. So I got in the big bed, and, and I, I was hatching a plan of what I, you know, what I was going to do. And I remembered that I had a friend that had a wife that worked in a place in Chicago that did something with alcohol. I didn't know if they made it or uh, <laughs> tasted it or what, but I thought, well, what I'll do, I'll call them and see if I can come up there and talk to those, those people. So I told Brenda, I said, I'm going to go up and talk to those people in Chicago about alcohol. And my intent was to go up there and explain to them who I was and, and how important I was and, and who I saw and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and that they would give me a, a, some kind of, of a certificate that I could just whip out. Somebody say something about my drink, and I whip it out. You know, <laughs> you're, you know you're not drunk. Nothing wrong with you, boy. <laughs> So I flew up there and spent all day talking to these people. Uh, warning to people that back that don't know anything about the disease of alcoholism or anything like that, you're, you're in trouble when you go and talk to these people if you don't know what you're talking about because you might wind up telling the truth. And uh, that ain't good. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, they said in their opinion that I was suffering from acute alcoholism, that they had a treatment program there, 28-day program, and they had a bed with my name on it. And I thought, thanked them very much, and I thought, you know, I've wasted a whole day. And airfare and all that, I said, they have not heard a word I've said. They said, well, if you're not going to stay here, then when you get back to High Point, uh, look up A&A and uh, go to the uh, meeting and do what those folks tell you to do. And I said, I sure will. I left, and I got on the plane, and I'm thinking... 
I doubt that there's even a franchise of A&A in High Point. <laughs> Hell, they don't even sell liquor by the drink. <laughs> you know, I said, Ain't no way they got an A&A in High Point. But anyway, I thought to myself, I think, you know, I'll just, I'll just quit. So I got home and Brenda said, how'd it go? And I said, best thing that we've ever done. I said, those folks told me that in 30, 40 years, I might develop a problem with alcohol. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm just going to quit. Well, that tickled her to death. Got me back in the big bed, and everything was cool. <laughs> now, I used to think that I, I didn't drink at all for a, a couple of years. Uh, but I went back and started calculating this, and the fourth step helped a great deal with <laughs> the first one. And the best I can figure, I think I didn't drink at all for three weeks. Uh, <laughs> about three weeks. And... Uh, we went to Myrtle Beach, and uh, I told her, I said, now, you know, I ain't drank in a while, and, and I, I'm not going to lay off the booze. I'm just going to drink a little beer time to time, and I think I'll just get a six-pack. And, you know, she agreed, uh, bless her heart. And uh, so I was off and running. Now, I knew I'd learned something valuable. Lesson. I learned that if you're around people that are concerned about how much you drink and when you drink, and how much, you know, just don't be around those people. That was made much sense to me. So, you know, so I just said, well, okay, I just stayed gone. I stayed gone more. Uh, I didn't make that mistake about uh, telling her where I was at from then on because I didn't want to repeat that Buffalo uh, scenario, you know, with her calling and calling the FBI and all that kind of stuff. So I just didn't tell her where I was. I'd just leave and I'd say, I'm going to be back on Friday. If I, if I don't make it, I'll call you. And I'd call two or three times sometime, and, and I was just going. I had two kids. And she's there in, in High Point by herself, no relatives. I thought, you know, I thought back, what, what a foolish, foolish, foolish thing that was. And that's God looking over them when I wouldn't. And I, I've made amends for that. And I did that for a number of years, a number of years. And I just spiraled down and down and down. I did not realize how sick I was. I got a telephone call from her. She, she called my office, and uh, strangely enough, I was in at that moment. And I could tell by the sound of her voice that uh, something bad had happened. She said, you've got to come home. And I said, what is it? She said, come home. I said, is it the kids? She said, come home. She hung up. That feeling of impending doom that I used to have, and I'd been in blackout situations for years. Didn't know they were called blackouts. Uh, I called them, uh, you was having a good time. And if you were having a good time and drinking like I drank, you could not possibly remember uh, everything that you did. I lost cars. Uh, I, got, I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama one time, <coughs> and I woke up, came to, uh, and looked out, and my car was not out there in the parking lot at the hotel. <coughs> so I looked around the parking lot, it wasn't there. So I called the police said, somebody stole my car. So they came over, and uh, we started talking, and I guess he could still s smell booze on me. He said, get in the car, we'll ride around and see if we can find him. I thought, well, he probably knows where there's some car thieves, you know, around the, the area, local people, you know. So we're riding, and I noticed that we kept going to one bar after another bar, and about the fourth bar, they're setting my car. I thought, well... Man, that's great. They left it here. <laughs> I started to get out, and he said, he said, wait a minute. 
He said, I just want to tell you something. He said, I know what you look like. I wrote down the car on that the tag number on that car. He said, I know you're a damn drunk. He said, if I catch you out tonight, it's going to be trouble. I said, I want to tell you something. I said, I'm leaving town. I ain't ever coming back to this place, so don't worry about it. And I did. Uh, none of that ever dawned on me. That's not normal behavior. It just didn't, you know, didn't. You know. So anyway, I go home, uh, and she's there, and she says, uh, there was two detectives over here inquiring about your whereabouts. I said, oh, really? I said, yeah. So they, if I found you, so they wanted you to call this number and talk to them. I said, okay. Now, everything I'm going to tell you now is funny. It wasn't funny then, I won't tell you. So I called these detectives. They were real glad to hear from me. They were real friendly fellows, and they said they would uh, love for me to come over. They wanted to interview me. And I said, fine. I said, would 2 o'clock this afternoon be okay? They said, that'd be perfect. <laughs> So I went over there, and I'd seen Perry Mason and all those lawyer shows, and, you know, I knew how to act and not react. And so I went over there to be interviewed, and uh, I discovered that uh, the word interview is police talk, for they're going to arrest your ass. <laughs> so that's what that <laughs> And I went over there, and uh, they did. They did. I didn't leave. Brenda left. <laughs> I stayed. And... Uh, uh, they weren't near as friendly after we got interviewing. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, I, you know, it, it's hard to defend yourself when you don't have a clue about what the hell they're talking about, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I knew they knew that I didn't know what I was, you know. And so anyway, I was, I was, suffer I was uh, facing some heavy-duty stuff. I was two felonies. And, uh, and I was looking at life plus 40. That's, that's life plus 40 years. I often wonder what they would do. When you die, they just keep you another 40 or what? But, and I, I thought, my God, you know, I've never been that low. I was down lower than the snakes and the spiders. And, and I'd never been arrested before at all. And so Brenda obviously didn't know anything about this game. So she stumbled around and found out how to get bail money and got bailed out. And, and I went back to the house. And I, this is my thought process. I thought, well... I had two kids, one a girl in high school, a boy in junior. I thought, I'm just going to split. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to run away. I can't. And I thought, well, I can't do that and leave them here holding the whole bag. That, you know, and I thought, well, I'll just kill myself. I thought, I ain't going to do that. It might hurt, you know. <laughs> so, and this is when God started coming in and, and the miracle started happening. It had been five years since I'd been to Chicago. I didn't obviously hadn't looked up and phone book for A&A &A and High Point, and I thought, well, let me, maybe I better call A&A, &A. and I looked in the phone book, sure enough, there was an Alcoholics Anonymous, a telephone number. I didn't know what to say. I called that number, and I don't know who answered, I don't know who was on the answering service, and it was a woman, and I guess she'd had calls like this. I said, you know, is this Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah. I said, well, uh, uh, what do you all do? I, I didn't know. And she, bless her heart, she said, look, so there's a meeting tomorrow night, starts at 8 o'clock, and she gave me directions how to get there. And I thanked her and hung up. And I contend today, sometimes that's all we need to know, where a meeting is, what time it starts, and how to get there. That'll save your butt more often than not. 
I'd forgotten that there were places that I could go for 28 days. I wanted to hide. I wanted to become absolutely anonymous. And I'd forgotten about that. I didn't know you guys made uh, house calls. Uh, we called them 12-step calls back then. Did a lot of them back then. I didn't know that I could take somebody with me at an open meeting. This was an open meeting. I didn't know what that meant. But I did go. I went to that first AA meeting, scared to death. Wore a suit and tie, just like I've got on now. <laughs> and uh, walked into the old, the, one, of the, one of the old clubs there in High Point. Had a red door on the front door. I'd pass that door, that building. It was an old house. Before, and I thought it was a gambling house or worse, I'd go by there and I'd see people out on the front porch laughing and carrying on and smoking cigarettes and everything. I figured they gambled and whatever. So I went in that thing and I, I sat down on the back row and smoke was about this high off the ground, you know, back then. And somebody gave me a cup of coffee. And old boy got up that that night and did what I'm doing tonight, sharing his experience, strength, and hope. Y'all may remember Dennis Nance. He had, Dennis had been sober a little over a year when he gave that talk, and uh, the miracle was that I didn't compare with what Dennis was saying. Dennis was a black man. He had been a, a, uh, a uh, prisoner uh, uh, guard. At that time, he was a prisoner guard. He went on to work for Fellowship Hall, and I didn't identify. I didn't compare. I identify what he was talking about. And when he talks about that hole in his soul and and uh, an ego the size of the skies of Montana, I identified what he was saying. And I, I love that man because I he he told a story about having a new car. He was living in Germany, and drove it into a lake over there, drunk and climbing out, and sitting on top of the thing when it sunk in the lake. Well, I hadn't done that, but I had taken a golf cart in Houston and run it into a lake and got on the top of the golf cart as it sunk. Uh, I still can't play golf in Houston, best I... <laughs> but I could identify with those feelings that Dennis talked about. And I went, when they gave out the, the tokens that night, I went up and got that beginning token. Strange thing, I felt the same relief that I felt when I went down and joined the church that Sunday night uh, as a 13-year-old boy. It felt like there was a weight lifted off my, my shoulders. The difference was I looked around and everybody I saw was like me. And I knew it was like me. And I felt at home. I was completely at home. And uh, they told me to get a uh, sponsor and I got two. <laughs> you know, drunk one's good, two's better. And I kept both those guys until they died. Uh, one of them died in September of 07, and the other one died of uh, February of 08. They, uh, now they told me to buy this book, <laughs> the big book. And I bought the big book, and one of them said, uh, that's your textbook, boy. It's your textbook for living. Uh, you need to study that. That's your roadmap for living. Said so if you study that every day and you go to meetings every day and we, you do what we tell you to do, and then you give all that away, you got a slight chance of staying sober. Now we doubt it, but you might make it. <laughs> I love those old guys. There's not many left. Roy's one of them. Uh, but I started going to meetings. I uh, 
I did buy the book, and I have studied it, and I started working the steps. Steps one, two, and three I took real fast. When I was arrested, I said, God, help me, my coming back. Our literature says that those of us that have had faith and lost it, we're the bewildered ones. And I was bewildered. I knew there was a God. I had had a relationship with him before. But I wasn't sure that he wanted me back. Things I had done, things I had said, and I was the one that left him. It wasn't he that left me. And, and I was concerned about that. And I found that uh, God, my God, is a, is a God of love, and he's got enough grace to cover all of my sins and inequities. And I was glad that that was the case. And I started sponsoring people. Uh, I started right off once I knew what I was talking about. Uh, still don't know a whole bunch. Things started getting better. The progression of this disease started in. Just by not putting alcohol in my body, physically, I started feeling better. And that's a danger sign. After 30 days of not drinking, you feel better. And sometime we think we're cured. About 30, 40 days in this program, I felt better, and I thought, you know, maybe I, maybe I overshot the gun on this thing. I may not really be alcoholic. And I went to one of my sponsors, and he went through the, we had taken a, uh, fourth and fifth step by that time, <laughs> and uh, he pointed out these things, and I looked at him, I thought, yeah, I think I am an alcoholic, I don't think I jumped. I started these things now from February, when I came into the program, till August, I was going to meetings, every night, every night. I didn't want you guys to know that I was in trouble with the law, I didn't tell anybody, except Roy. I didn't realize if I told Roy, everybody knew. <laughs> but I stood in front of a, a judge, me and the judge, and my lawyer wasn't even there. He told me to go and stand in front of They'd worked out a deal, and uh, they didn't know what to do with me. I'd never been in trouble before, and the, the individuals that were part of this thing had agreed to drop charges for 25000 I didn't. I, I made a deal with them. The uh, district attorney said, no, we're going to make an example out of Jerry. He's a smart ass. Said, you, we're gonna, and so anyway, they didn't know what to do with me. And uh, they were talking about me going to prison for five years. And I said, well, I ain't doing that. We'll go to trial. And it got down to two years. And I said, look, if I have to spend any time in prison, we'll go to, we'll go to trial because I'm going to lose everything anyway. So we worked out a deal. I, was, uh, I, I got to report in every Friday night at 6 o'clock to the county jail. They locked me up on Friday night. I stayed in jail Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night, and they let me loose on Monday morning at 7 o'clock for 52 weekends in a row. And I thought, you know, that year of 83, 84, every holiday, every holiday occurred on the weekend, Saturday or Sunday. Uh, Memorial Day, Fourth uh, of July, you know, Labor Day. They were talking about moving Thanksgiving to Sunday that year. They didn't. I'd get out of I'd get out of jail on Monday morning. First place I'd go would, was one of my sponsor's office, and we'd write a letter to the judge, trying to get uh, that uh, done away with or whatever. Finally, around Christmas time, I started going to jail in August. Around Christmas time, the judge said, "Look, I don't want to hear." 
Jerry's name. I don't want any more letters from Ken. I don't want to hear see your voice, my, or see your face to my lawyer. Said he's doing all 52. So I accepted that. Didn't like it, but I accepted it. And once I accepted it, it got easier. They made me trustee, and before I left that place, I was checking prisoners in and out of the jail. <laughs> like I ran the place, you know. <laughs> Gave me a good chance to do a four-step. You're in that little cubicle in there with a commode with no seat on it and uh, in a bed with no bedspread and all that. I mean, it's a terrible place to be. Uh, but you can get right humble. <laughs> I did an extra four-step in there, and I tell my, my pigeons, I said, you know, if you guys want a good place to do a four stuff, I still know people over there I can arrange <laughs> a weekend. Uh, terrible. So anyway, I got through that, and I started my amends. Uh, one of the hardest things I ever had to do with this thing was to call my mama and tell her that her oldest son, her baby boy, had been arrested and may spend the rest of his life in jail. And somebody said, well, why in the world did you call her? I said, well, I figured they'd miss me at family reunions, you know. And so I figured I'd better tell her. So I started making amends. And people I hurt the most were the people that I loved the most. That was my family. And uh, I made them to my children. I made them to my wife. And incidentally, that little old girl there that uh, I captured in 1961 will be married 49 years this fall, if, if she don't leave me. <laughs> yeah. and, and the key to that is this program, and the Alamon program, saved our marriage, saved my life. Saved our marriage. I've been sober about three and a half years, and all I was I was doing I was going to meetings. I wasn't drinking, but I was not abiding by the principles in all those steps. And I got caught having an affair, sober. Now I had no excuse. Booze had nothing to do with it. it was all of those defects of character. I had to bring up and look at and, and own and discard them. What's that that uh, Clancy says, uh, uncover, discover, discard? And uh, Brenda had some choices to make. And I thank God for this program and people like Peggy and her sponsor, Peggy. Uh, they kept saying, well, won't you wait until this happens? Won't you wait till this happens? I got so tired of hearing if we make it, <laughs> that was the, uh, you know, well, we worked through this thing. We worked through this thing, and I, my, my, uh, what I like to tell y'all, any of you, if you're doing something that doesn't abide all by all twelve of those steps, stop it, because it'll it'll bite you in the butt. And this program, we've got a stronger marriage than we've ever had, and, and I love her more than I ever did. My son, I was telling him one day, I'd made amends and we were just talking. I'm about through, y'all. I know where it's at. I had, uh, I said, you know, Chris, one of the things I hate the worst uh, about grow, you grow, your growing up was my, I was just gone all the time. wasn't with you while you were growing up. And I said, I hate that. She says, Dad, this is a teenage boy. He said, I want to tell you something. I, I respect you more than any man that I know. I mean, that, you know, can't buy that anyway. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, well, he said, I saw what you did when you were in all that trouble. And he said, I saw what you did with your life. He said, I saw how Alcoholics Anonymous turned your life around and you were able to do what folks told you to do and start living by those principles. And he said, when I started liking booze and whiskey and that little white stuff more than I knew I should, 
I knew that I could stop with the help of the same God that you used to help. And he said, I reached out to that God. And he said, I'll leave that stuff alone now. And I thought to myself, just as when we're in our active alcoholism, the negativity that we put on people, the negative results, when we're in this program and people see us change, our lives change, we can affect people in a positive way. That same boy, he was coming home, um, he was married, moved to Baltimore. And he was coming home uh, one Christmas, he and his wife, about 2.30 in the morning, up around Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin, <laughs> Madison, uh, North Carolina, uh, which is about 60 miles north of where we live. We get a telephone call at 2.30 in the morning. Brenda answers it, and all she can do is cry and say, oh, my God, oh, my God. I get the phone from her, and I, I, uh, I figure, figure they've had a wreck. Uh, and I said, he said, Daddy said there was a man walking down the road at 2.30 in the morning, uh, drunk, and he said he, he evidently fell out in front of me, and I hit him, and I killed him. And then I said, oh, my God, oh, my God. I said, we'll be there in just a minute. We got dressed and ran up there, and uh, there was cop cars and ambulances, and it was lit up like the 4th of July up there, and, and this was, guy was an illegal immigrant. He'd been in, in Madison and was walking down the road dressed in black, black hat on, black. We don't know if he stumbled out in the road or jumped or what, but Chris did hit him and knocked him over into the medium, and, and uh, he stopped the, the car, uh, called 911. There was an 18-wheeler com coming by, and... Uh, uh, he stopped, and uh, they found the man out in, in the ditch, and he was still breathing. And my daughter-in-law, my son, and this truck driver, he was a, a Christian man, and they were praying over this lost soul when he passed. We got home that night, and Chris said, You know, Dad, you always told me that there was good in everything. He said, I said, Well, let's think about this, son. I said, Number one, when you call for help, your daddy was where you were supposed to be, lying in bed by your mom. I said, there was a time your mama wouldn't know where I was at. I said, number two, I said, you and your wife and this, this other fellow was there with that man praying over his body when he passed. He didn't die alone. He didn't die in a, in a cold ditch. You were there with him. And I said, more importantly, you know now that your Heavenly Father is always there with you regardless of what situation you find yourself in and he said I understand and he was okay with it hurt him but he was all right with it got one story other story and I'll close this is my my dad uh, my dad uh, got colon cancer when he was uh, nine 2002 they gave him a year to live I'll tell this because I want you all to know how through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous my Maturity in my spiritual uh, program uh, developed. Uh, Daddy had a year to live, and I was at that time uh, capable of going every other weekend down Alabama. It was an eight and a half, nine hour drive, and I'd drive down on Friday, spend Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and come back on Sunday. I'd made amends to Mom and Daddy. We had just quality times. We would talk sometime. We'd just watch old gun smoke reruns, you know, Daddy, and, and we'd talk. And, Every once in a while, we talk about the lost years, those years that uh, I just, my, my problems with them was omission. I just cut them out of my life because I knew they wouldn't accept me drinking, so I just didn't be around them, remember? If you're around people that have a problem with your drinking, don't be around them. And I, I hurt them bad, and I know it. 
So I'd made amends to them, and, and Daddy told me, he said, uh, when they, I heard that I had a year to live, he said, I, I told God, I said, God, I can't, I can't handle this on my own. It's too big for me. And I thought, that's the same thing I said to God when I admitted that I had a disease of alcoholism. I said, I can't handle this, God. I'm going to have to give it to you. Same God, same problems. I gave it to And Daddy said he gave it to God, and he said, um, a nurse came in and said they spent several, 30 minutes, hour and a half, talking. She was a woman of faith, and they shared their faith and talked about life and death. And this. They had a word of prayer, the two of them, and she left, and Daddy went to sleep. said he slept the best that he had in years. She, well, he woke up the next morning early, and this same nurse was standing by his side. He said, have you been here all night? She said, no, no, no. I said, I was making some rounds. I said, I heard you stirring around. I said, I came in to see if you was all right. They talked again a little bit, had prayer, and she left. Later that day and the next day and the next day, he started trying to find out who this nurse was. There was no nurse working there, nobody there with that description at all. And he said to me, he said, son, you think that was an angel that God sent down to confirm that everything was going to be okay? I said, if you believe that, Daddy, I do. Now, the point being, it worked for him. He knew he was confirmed that God was going to make things all right. And that next year, he went and did not have any pain at all. He had colon cancer, which is one of the most, I guess, hurtful, painful kinds of cancer, cancer at all. I don't pain at all. The hospice nurses used to find out who got to come and see Daddy. Because they'd come in and they'd leave happy and smiling because he'd joke with them and make them feel better. And I thought, what a, what a way to leave this world with that kind of testimony. Now, he passed. I didn't want him to. But I accepted that it was real. It was God's will. And I knew that he was healed. And I knew he was healed. And I made a commitment then that I would call my mother every night, and I have for the last seven years, uh, with a few exceptions. I'd call her every night at bedtime, right around, and uh, mostly I listen and she talks, and I grunt, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that's this way this program works, you know, the way this program works. Yesterday morning, I got here, and I got a phone call from a guy I don't even know. Had, a, had my number, and he called, and he said, I got a problem, Jerry. He said, I got your number somewhere in the program. He said, I've got a guy that I'm trying to sponsor. So he's got a friend that he just called me and he said his, his friend has run over somebody on a bicycle. His friend was on a bicycle and somebody ran over him and killed him. He said, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to talk to. I said, well, I'm in Kentucky. But I said, hang on, let me get your number and I'll call you back. I'll, I'll find somebody for you to, to get with. So I made some phone calls, and I got a guy that uh, they're together, and he's leading him through to what to tell this guy that's sponsoring a guy that's run over somebody and killed him. Yeah. And that's the way this program works, one drunk sharing with another drunk. In closing, I would wish you not years of happiness and sobriety, but the reality of life. I do not wish you joy without sorrow, nor endless day without the healing dark, nor brilliant sun without the restful shadow, nor tides that never turn against your bark. I wish you faith and love and strength and wisdom. And goods, gold enough to help somebody, 
I'll issue songs, but also blessed silence, and God's sweet peace whenever day is done. Come live in Brenda in my heart, the rent's free. God bless y'all.